I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 18 this morning. In our study of Revelation, we have already worked through that last great time of judgment that's coming upon the earth at the end of this age, right before the final return of Jesus Christ, to vindicate himself and his people. The title of our series is The Vindication of the Lord and His People. And when he comes to vindicate, he will overthrow all who are against him and he will establish his kingdom in which those whom he is vindicating will actually reign with him. It's one of the most stunning ideas in the whole book. We've covered it a long time ago, but I run into it every once in a while as I'm reading through the text. And I just, I can't, I can't believe the over-the-top language John uses to describe what it will be for us with the Lamb when he finally returns. But the way the Lord has been revealing all of this to John, there are several interruptions in the flow of the narrative so that the Lord can focus our attention on some aspect of the judgment or what is going on in the big picture. And these things are given so that we might know how to think about the climax of human history in the future and what it means for us who struggle to serve the Lord and follow him today. So in this larger section, we are covering chapters 17, 18, and part of 19. And we're encountering this long interruption in the flow of the narrative so that the Lord can show us what happens to evil. What happens to at least one portion of this evil governing force that's on the earth during the tribulation period, this powerful governing influence that will actually pervade the entire world during the tribulation period. This governing influence we've seen is called Babylon. In Revelation, it's pictured as a, a, a woman of harlotry, as the text said it, as, as Brother John read this morning, a, a prostitute represented by her in John's vision. And it may be a particular city, like we say D.C., uh, for the United States, or it could be a grouping of cities. We don't know how it's going to go down for certain. But this Babylon is pictured in chapter 17 as this great immoral prostitute riding the beast who we've already identified in, 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 in uh, Revelation as the Antichrist, holding sway through the attraction of her wealth and power, holding sway over kings and nations and people throughout the world who participate in her sin as she turns the hearts of people away from the Lord and also seeks to destroy those who want to honor and follow the Lord. An irony of ironies, God himself puts it into the heart of the beast, the Antichrist, and the nations that are following him to actually destroy this woman, this Babylon, this governing influence. And they bring her down to utter ruin. We saw at the end of Revelation 17 that it says they will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. And this destruction of such a pervasive influence sends shockwaves around the globe. No one can believe that Babylon has fallen and gone are all the opportunities and commodities that she brought to the world. And we could imagine that those who participated with her or gained wealth from her would lament her demise. And we could imagine that those who suffered because of her, that is the people of God, would rejoice in her fall. 
But when we read chapter 18, which we're going to read the whole of chapter 18 here this morning as we begin, we get a mixture of both lament and rejoicing. Because we are reading about the fall of Babylon from God's perspective. And I want us to see at the beginning here how he describes this great fall, reading the entire chapter. And I'll have the words as I normally do up here on the screen, but you can follow along in the text. Let's read this chapter together. John says, After this I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. The only time we see an angel lighting up the earth. And one commentator said it's probably because he's just come from the presence of God. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beasts. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues for her sins are heaped high as heaven and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she has mixed. As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a like measure of torment and mourning. Since in her heart, she says, I sit as a queen. I am no widow and mourning I shall never see. For this reason, her plagues will come down in a single day death and mourning and famine and she will be burned up with fire for mighty is the lord god who judged her and the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning they will stand far off in fear of her torment and say alas alas you great city you mighty city babylon For in a single hour, your judgment has come. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her since no one buys their cargo anymore. Cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wood, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle, and sheep, horses, and chariots, and slaves, that is, human souls, literally bodies, soma for you Greek readers, bodies, that is, human souls. He says, the fruit for which your soul longed has gone from you, and your delicacies and your splendors are lost to you, never to be found again. The merchants of, the, of these wares who gained wealth from her will stand far off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud. I think they stand in far off because they're complicit in this because they bought into it and they're fearful. It's like when you're a parent and you're punishing one child and, and Proverbs says, when you punish a fool, the simple are made wise. You know, they didn't participate in that, but they're standing afar off because they don't want a piece of what's going on. All of the people who are lamenting and mourning, they're standing far back. They don't want a part of the judgment, though they took part in the sin. 
and they cry out, verse 16, alas, alas for the great city that was clothed in fine linen, in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold and jewels and pearls. For in a single hour, all this wealth has been laid waste. And all shipmasters and seafaring men, sailors and all who trade is on the sea, stood far off and cried out as they saw the smoke of her burning. What city was like the great city? And they threw dust on their heads and they wept and mourned, crying out, Alas, alas for the great city where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth. For in a single hour she has been laid waste. And then we hear suddenly, Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon the great city be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. And the sound of harpists and musicians of flute players and trumpets will be heard in you no more. And a craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more. And the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. And the light of a lamp will shine in you no more. And the voice of bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more. For your merchants were the great ones of the earth, and all nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all who have been slain on earth. This is an intense and poetic pronouncement of prophecy of judgment upon the world. It's sinful influence and it's ruinous control over people who are allured and swept away by her. Her judgment will be complete and final. Now, how are we to respond to this judgment? As most of you know who have been here during the series in the last few weeks, I've been looking at these chapters under the idea that there are several appropriate responses that are suggested here that allow the text to minister to us in the way the Lord intended. And we've been concentrating really on only one of them up till now to, to help us understand some of the basic things that are going on in these chapters, namely that we should be wise Because the angel explaining the vision to John in chapter 17 tells him this calls for a mind of wisdom, a mind of Sophia, not just a knowledge of the facts and sensational elements that are going on in these chapters or in any of the prophecy of Revelation, but discernment in how to connect the elements together in the right way so that the right picture emerges of what God is trying to tell us. And I emphasized last week, we need wisdom to look at all of this from the perspective of God's wise and loving control. But there's another response I'd like to move to this morning. And it is this, not only must we be wise, we also have to be warned. Be warned. Now, if you've been taking notes, I had another response as the second one, okay? But they don't have to be in any particular order. And this seemed logically actually to flow. Once I started studying the text this week, that not only must we be wise, we need to be warned. Revelation 18, verses 4 and 5, is where we find this warning. I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, 
Come out of Babylon. Get out. Lest you take part in her sins. Lest you share in her plagues. In other words, her judgments. That's, that's the word plagues. That's the word he uses for the intense judgments in chapter 16. For her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. This is a call for the Lord's people to come out of Babylon, to separate herself from this wicked governing influence over the world before the judgment falls. It's not unlike the call to Lot and his family to get out of Sodom, which we're going to look at next week. This, as usual, this is going to take a couple of weeks to get through, okay? So just be patient. There's something so important here in this text. I don't want you to miss it. Come out of her, my people, says the Lord. This is a proper response to this prophecy, and we should be instructed by it this morning because it is the same response that we should have today to whatever is Babylonian-like in our culture. And as we read and study Babylon, we see there is, Babylon is very much alive in our culture. It might not be the political force tied together in the particular way that he's talking about in Revelation, but it's the same kind of satanic influence over the world where Satan is trying to twist and control everything that God has created ever since going back even to the Tower of Babel, which I think may be the reason he actually calls this Babylon. This is a warning to us from the Lord. But to rightly appreciate the warning, there's some questions that we need to ask about the warning. And that's what we're going to do. We're going to start asking some questions about this warning. And the first one is this. The Lord says, lest you take part in her sins. What are the sins of Babylon? What specifically is the Lord targeting in this prophecy? Second, how would we take part in her sins? And then he says, lest you share in her plagues. Well, how would we share in her plagues? How would we be judged like her? And finally, we need to ask the main question, how do we come out from her? So first, this morning, let's look at this question. What are the sins of Babylon? I'm going to start by pointing out that whatever they are, they must be pretty awful sins. Would you agree? Because did you notice the severity of the judgment? I mean, we've seen severe judgments in Revelation, right? They're, they're very severe. But he's, he's specifically just rejoicing and promising the bringing down of this Babylon. And so he says in verse 6, pay her back as she herself has been paid, uh, has paid back others and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed. You think of the, the angels pouring out their, their vials of wrath in chapter 16. He says, mix her a double portion. And in verse 8, he says, for this reason, her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire, for mighty is the Lord God who judged her. What kind of sins did this city commit, this governing influence, in order to deserve such judgment? Well, we can think of a lot of terrible sins that people can commit. In fact, when we think about Revelation and people being judged for sin, we probably think of sins like these. For instance, Paul's list in Romans chapter 1, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. You didn't think that was a bad one, did you? Well, it really is. Uh, disobedient to parents, foolish, 
faithless, heartless, ruthless, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Will there be those kinds of sins practiced during the tribulation period? Of course there will be. There will be an intensity of sin in this intense time of darkness in the tribulation period. At the end of Revelation 19, or in the, at the end of Revelation 9, for instance, it says that those who were not killed by the judgments of God in that chapter would not give up worshiping demons and idols, and they would not repent of their murders or their sorceries, sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. So this kind of thing is going on in the time period that Revelation is talking about. But those are not the sins of the culture of Babylon that are emphasized here. There is an abandonment of God that is much more fundamental than these individual specific sins. Most of the sins of Babylon, I think, can be divided into three fundamental categories. And this is why she is being judged. First, she is being judged for her spiritual immorality. The the text always uses the word porneia. And of course, our word pornography and other words related to that come from this word porneia. Her, her spiritual immorality is what I'm saying here. And, and yes, these other sins can be committed that we read about in Paul just a second ago in Romans 1. But they all flow from something more fundamental. The fundamental thing, first of all, is spiritual immorality. And we see this in the first cry against Babylon. If we go back to verse 8 of, of chapter 14, when the angel cries about the fall of Babylon that's coming, he says, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. Now, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, the book of Revelation uses immorality, fornication, sexual immorality, or the Greek word porneia, as a metaphor, a picture for spiritual adultery and immorality. In other words, unfaithfulness to God and Jesus, his son. That, that is exactly the metaphor that Hosea is going to use all throughout the prophets. You saw that this morning, how God's, God's wife, Israel, has been unfaithful to him and, and has left, and yet he's going to bring her back anyway. And that's the way Revelation mainly is using immorality. In the Old Testament, God uses this illustration, and the New Testament writers sometimes use the same metaphor. For instance, I mentioned the other week, James 4.4. James calls his readers adulteresses, unfaithful wives, if they cozy up to the sinful world and become the enemy of God. He says, you're adulteresses. And it's easy to see why this metaphor works so well and why it really grabs something in our spirit. It lays bare the truth that we were created to love and serve God. So when we love something else or someone else instead, it's it's like a wife abandoning her husband for the arms of another man. And let me be clear, the fact that this sexual immorality is spiritual a metaphor for being unfaithful to God, does not mean that regular physical immorality is not going to be rampant in the tribulation. Quite the contrary. The appalling level, appalling level of open fornication that we already see in the world 
It really, it, it's just unimaginable. You can't even look. You don't even think about it. You start knowing things that kids in grade school know and have done and practice, and, and it blows your mind. We, we, we have gone over the cliff years ago in the sexual revolution. So yes, there's going to be gross immorality of the physical time. But again, this is only a symptom of something much more fundamental, which is we've abandoned God. Unfaithfulness to God, forsaking the Lord who loves us, who paid for our sins with his precious blood. If you choose to live a life of sin or immorality or idolatry, you do it not because you're making some neutral choice, between following God and following path of sin. It's not a matter of, you know, I think I'll choose door number one rather than door number two. It's not like that at all. If you choose a life of sin, it's because you abandoned the God who already owned you, the God to which you should already have been giving your devotion. You've left him and gone on to someone else. So the sin of this Babylon is that she promoted the abandonment of the Lord for the worships of something else. She led the earth astray. You see that right here in the text? It says that she made all the nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. It's a verb that means to persuade someone to drink, to say, hey, here, have one. No, it's okay. If Babylon made the nations drink the wine of the passion of her pernea, we're not surprised that in 17.2, that angel, the angel describes the woman Babylon as her with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. They've they've drank in it. And you might be thinking that the world is going to be doing pretty well abandoning God on its own without needing anyone to push it along the way things are going today. But you see, this Babylon is a governing influence that actively seeks to destroy the idea of God and his son and salvation through him. It's it's anti-Christianity as a political policy that keeps people from ever coming to God. It's an all-out war against Christianity that we're seeing about here. Later in chapter 17, the woman Babylon is described as the mother of prostitutes. And in 17.4, it says she's holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And in 18.9, the fall of Babylon is lamented by the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her. And in 19.2, the chapter, we haven't looked at that one yet, but it's part of this whole uh, section. There's a great triumphant call to praise God because he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality. This is a fundamental category of sin for which Babylon will be judged. Now, there is another fundamental category of Babylon's sin. If by policy, Babylon draws the hearts and kings away from God, what does she draw their heart to? And I think this is really striking. I'll label it wanton self-indulgence wanton self-indulgence. In chapter 17, when we first meet this great prostitute riding the beast, the metaphorical image for Babylon reads that the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls. This clothing and jewelry were status symbols of great wealth in the ancient world. 
and the fact that this Babylon has a lot of wealth and power isn't the problem itself. There's nothing wrong with money and, and, and there's nothing wrong with the governing influence. The problem is what Revelation 18.7 describes. The judgment cry against Babylon in 18.7 says, she glorified herself and lived in luxury. The word for luxury doesn't just mean having a lot of money, having a lot of things. It refers to a lust after earthly treasures, a culture in which the principal focus is amassing lavish wealth and celebrating it, a culture in which greed and erevis and materialism and idolatry and sensual immorality flourish because the focus is on how much I can attain and everybody is after it at the same time. That is why the verse says she glorified herself. And this culture of self-glorification, self-indulgence will spread throughout the earth wherever the wine of Babylon's sexual immorality is imbibed. Verse 9 of chapter 18 says that the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality with her also lived in luxury with her because she will make sure that she maintains control over those kings by making them fabulously wealthy. And you can be certain that those kings will in turn enrich those who continue to keep them in power so they can enjoy their wealth. You see, in the background here, and this is important to understand, in in the background of what's going on here, there's this understanding of how money and wealth works in a fallen world, especially in ancient Rome. I mean, the people reading this prophecy originally, probably they all understood this. All money and wealth and goods and produce moves toward those in power and away from those producing it. The Roman government put a tax on everything so that money was always flowing in their direction, assuring their power and control. And the only thing that can knock them off their seat is another nation coming in who's mightier. And once Rome began to crumble, uh, the, the barbaric nations came in. God brought them down that way. But with that control that Rome has, they moved goods and wealth away from those who were producing it to support the elite of society who were honoring them. The merchants would grow rich because they were the ones who were moving the commodities and those who owned the labor made enough to profit to sustain them. But the ones doing the most work, the slaves in the field or the mines or the day laborers, were the ones who benefited least from the wealth flowing in. Thus, wealth moved furthest from those who were doing the most to create it to those who were doing the least to create it. And it is greed and lust that drives this engine in a fallen world so that those closest to the top of the wealth chain care least about those at the bottom. We we see the same kind of thing happening in our culture today driven by a hunger for greed and power. And there is a growing awareness in our society that if you start asking where many of our products and material things come from, you realize that we get many of them from companies overseas who use child labor and people, I'm not making a political statement here, by the way, but they use child labor and people working in terrible conditions for very little pay to mass produce products that enrich other people. Statistics from 2020 say that one in 10 of all children in the world grow up working like this. One in 10 of all children born in the world grow up working in conditions like this, 
they start working as children. And a third of them receive no education. And all of this to make rich people who are in the upline. Do you know that during the pandemic where businesses were hurting because of shutdowns and people were in real financial crises, there were actually 573 new billionaires added to the list of billionaires that we have in the world? Do you realize that analysts estimate that the 10 wealthiest people in the world actually have more money than 40% of the poorest people on the planet? 40% of the population on the planet have just as much money as the 10 richest people in the world. Now, again, there's nothing immoral about having money. In fact, what we don't often hear are the stories of altruism and self-sacrifice by many who have wealth, who are trying to use their resources to help people in need. And I often think about the fact that we shouldn't beat ourselves up in the West here in America for having a lot of things. We've been able to enrich the world and bless missionaries and and people who are taking the gospel. And and, uh, missions has been created in places where it could not have flourished because we have capital to spend in that way. So there are still a lot of people and, and believing people among them who want to see good happening with this. But that's not the way it is in the world during the tribulation period. The rich are drunk with their prosperity. It is a flagrant celebration of wealth and anything one can do to obtain it. And those who participate are literally selling their souls to the devil. Did it strike you when we were reading through chapter 18? Even, especially if you, were, if you were thinking, okay, what are all these sins they're being judged for? Did it strike you that most of the chapter is about buying and selling? It's about things. It's about commodity. That should not escape our notice. The merchants and shipmasters are lamenting that the system of wealth has been destroyed. Who could have imagined that it would be taken down? Revelation 18, 11 through 13. Notice again, starting at verse 11, that the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her since no one buys their cargo anymore. And then they have this long grocery list here, right? Of, of, of this expanse of wealth, the various values of these items and the various types, precious metals and stones that are mined from the earth or sea, cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, textiles, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, beautiful decorative material that are, that, that are worked and crafted and shaped. He says all kinds of scented wood and all kinds of articles of ivory and all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble, fragrances and perfumes, which is what it's getting at here when it says cinnamon, Spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, or foods, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, or livestock, cattle, and sheep, transportation, horses, and chariots, which is what we're all going to be driving if the price of gas uh, keeps going up. And uh, then he says, as I said earlier, people, slaves, that is human souls. There's your slave labor in the tribulation. And you know, it's not really the Greek word for slaves. Like I said, it's, it's the word for bodies. People as commodities. It's, it really incenses you when you read it in, in the Greek text. It's an indication that those who buy these people live in luxury and they don't care what it costs somebody else. Yet this is also an indictment against slavery because he adds the words, these are human souls. He didn't have to say that. They're, they're treating them as bodies, but they're really the souls of people. And notice the fruit for which your soul longed. 
has gone from you. That is a commentary on everything we trust in that is not eternal. Do we long for anything that is not eternal? It is not going to be with us long. It's going to be gone. He says, all your delicacies and your splendors are now are lost to you, never to be found again. In a different context, these precious things of the earth, the fine linen and purple and scarlet, gold and jewels and pearls and precious gifts, they're, they're, they're from a wise and loving God who has created the earth and called it good. And, and, and the scripture says he's given us all things richly to enjoy. But the people of the earth under the control of Babylon are not worshiping the God who gave the gifts. They are worshiping the gifts themselves. It is what their souls long for. That's their sin. And to put their sin in an even more striking perspective, I, I want you to think about the fact the prophecy of judgment, we've seen this over and over again, it always is coming from the throne room of heaven. And think, think with me for a second. It's coming from the divine temple in heaven. It opens up, here comes the judgment. The angel takes the censer and the, the prayers of the saints are going up and he takes the clothes off the altar and he's about to throw the judgment on the earth. It's, it's all coming from the temple. We see this glorious temple in Revelation 4 and 5 where God is on his throne the four living creatures representing all of the creatures of the earth are worshiping him day and night. The 24 elders are surrounding him around this scene, falling in their faces, honoring, and glorifying the Lord. And John looks up and there's this myriad company of angels around them worshiping the Lord. And then, and then he looks further and all of creation finishes out the circle. And they're all looking toward the throne of God. And they're all worshiping him day and night. This is how all of creation should be arranged. And we talked about that way, when we were way back when in the other building in, in this text, that we should arrange all of our lives so that we are always looking toward that throne. We're always pointed in that direction. And yet there are those on the earth who are not participating in the whole earthly bringing glory to God. Instead, they bring glory to themselves. They seek wealth and prosperity only for themselves, taking advantage of God's gifts and demeaning the giver. No wonder all of the judgments of Revelation emanate from this heavenly temple, from God's holy throne. God is correcting what is wrong in the earth. His judgment is a determined and measured and righteous response upon anyone in the universe practicing this wanton self-indulgence because they're not in line with the circle of worshipers who with joy and wonder are fulfilling the purpose for which they've been created. That is what is going on. That is the sin that they're being judged for. There's a third sin that I'll mention quickly. I know our time is fleeting here. Uh, and I put it this way, Christian genocide. The woman Babylon is described in chapter 17 as drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs. Drunk with the blood is a phrase that referred in the ancient world to the sheer delight and euphoria that some people had when they were killing their victims painfully and creatively or in great numbers. There was a lot of glee in the shedding of blood. And that's what the woman is drunk with. And in chapter 18, verse 24, this sin is also mentioned referring to the blood of prophets and saints, likely a reference to those who are preaching the gospel in particular and those who are generally followers of Christ in the tribulation period. And in chapter 19, verse 2, when God violently strikes down this Babylon 
It will be an avenging of their blood. You see, in these foundational sins are bound up the whole picture of what it would be like in the world during this time period. The government will operate on a policy that turns the hearts of people away from God toward material things to commit spiritual fornication and idolatry. And the only people who refuse to go along with this will be those whose hearts are loyal to the Lord Jesus. So they must be eliminated by this government. And to make sure they can identify those people who refuse to bow, the beast will require everyone buying and selling to receive his mark, like we saw back in chapter 13. That's why Revelation sometimes refers to believers and non-believers as those who have or have not received the mark of the beast. To receive the mark is to participate in the sins of turning away from God to the idol of wealth and prosperity. That's why the mark means you can buy and sell. There it is again. It's, it's about prosperity. So those are the sins for which the city, this governing influence, will meet her swift and harsh judgment. Now, I told you a little bit ago that there are four questions we need to consider if we're going to really understand this warning that God gives to his people. And I, I think this is really important. I don't want to rush this. I, I could have rushed the squeeze the last three in, not, not going to work. Uh, we'll, we'll look at these next week before we gather around the table. But I want to leave you with this one thought. I wondered if, if it seems a little over the top to you, a little extra, that God would judge the world so harshly for sins like this. I mean, setting aside the murder of God's people, that's pretty bad, obviously. But maybe if you were to just be asked without looking at the text, what would be sins God would be upset about as as he would judge the world in righteousness? These might not have come to mind. Simply that people have turned from worshiping God to worshiping his gifts. I mean, isn't that something that we all do at one time or another to some extent? We can think of so many other terrible, terrible sins that people can commit and we can easily imagine God's judgment coming upon the earth for those sins. But, but that? And if we're tempted to think this way, I think it betrays our most deep and profound sin struggle and the source of all of our other sins, really, that we should give our highest love to anything or anyone else other than the God who made us and redeemed us with the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, that we would, in fact, worship our own desires, holding what we want, holding our image more valuable than his. And as we continue to mine truth from these chapters, as we continue to to ask these questions next Lord's Day, I think we should ask the Lord to point to anything or any person or any position or any experience or any plans that we know we have that we are giving more devotion to than him. This sin is why God is judging the earth. And every other sin comes from it in one way or another. It may be a first and necessary step for us if we're going to heed the Lord's warning to get out of Babylon, to realize how much we are participating in Babylon. And may God give us his grace as we are wisely thinking through how he wants us to respond to this text. Father, thank you.